following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. I don't know about you, but the stories that often... uh, grab my attention are those stories where someone, ordinary person, does something extraordinary. Uh, Everyday folk who may even risk their lives in order to help out someone else who is in danger or in need. I came across this week, uh, there's a fund, I don't know if you've heard of this, that Andrew Carnegie set up over 100 years ago. It's a fund that is provided for uh, those everyday people who have uh, committed a selfless, selfless act of courage come to the aid of someone else or save someone else. And so Andrew Carnegie wanted to be able to help those people who've done that because sometimes when you risk your life for somebody else, there may be harm or, or damage. Or, and so he wanted some funds set up to be able to, to uh, as a way to thank these people. To date, over the life of this fund, there's been nearly 10,000 people who have received this Andrew Carnegie Medal of Honor. And there's a website, actually, that has collected a lot of the stories from these various accounts. And so I found myself reading several of these stories. One was of a little boy who, uh, up in Oxnard, um, not long ago, was being pulled under by the undercurrents as he was swimming. And as he cried for help, there was a woman named Denise Bozak who immediately jumped in the water. And though the waves were strong, the undercurrent was strong, she was able to bring him back safely to shore. Now, Denise wasn't the lifeguard on duty that day. Actually, she was a realtor. Uh, I don't know if Dave, if you're in here, but realtor. Maybe she knows Dave Fogg. But she was just on the beach that day with her family, heard the cries for help, and she jumped in. I read of a young woman named Robin Adair. As she was traveling home, uh, she saw and noticed a mobile home that was going up in flames. And as she looked at this mobile home, she saw a woman come out of the front door with three young children. And the woman was trying to get back in, but the flames were preventing her. So Robin stopped her car, and she got out and found out from the woman that her baby was still inside. And so Robin, without thinking twice, ran around the mobile home, found a window to climb in. She climbed into the house. She found this little one, wrapped her in a blanket, but she was disoriented by the smoke. But she could hear those outside calling for her, was able to make her way back to the window and climb out to safety. There was another account of a young girl, 12 years old, named Gloria Rodriguez from right here in Los Angeles. This brave young lady instinctively pushed aside her friend. They were both walking on the sidewalk. She noticed the car that was coming towards them, pushed her friend out of the way. And that car narrowly missed her friend. But when Gloria did that, she was alone standing there and was hit by the car and killed. And these were just a few of the countless heroic acts that I was able to read while looking at that website. And I I picked those three stories in particular because the heroes in them are actually heroines. All three were women, young and old, who came to the rescue despite their own personal risk, came to the aid of someone in danger. And in the same way, there have been many women all throughout Scripture that have placed themselves in harm's way and performed incredibly brave acts. I think of Rahab, Deborah, Jael, Ruth, Esther, and so many more. And I entitled our message this morning, The Woman Who Saved Christmas, because there's one woman in particular whose courage prevented an event 
that would have led to having no baby in the manger. When you think of heroic women and Christmas, who's the first one that comes to your mind? Mary, right? And indeed, she was a young woman of great faith, a young teenager who accepted the Lord's plan for her life despite the public shame and despite the difficulties and the overwhelming odds that faced her. She accepted God's choice for her to bear the Messiah. Last Christmas, we talked about her. We talked about the example and encouragement of her faith. But there's another woman in connection to Christmas whose bravery you don't often hear about. In fact, she's only found in one story in the Bible. Even those very familiar with the Bible don't often recognize her name or remember her. In fact, I was looking in Herman Lockyer's book, All the Women of the Bible. He has a series of these where he's looked at various topics. In his book, he actually devotes 15 times more towards uh, describing Jezebel and her life than this woman. And that's not to denigrate his book at all. It's a a great book, but it just tells you that, that she is fairly obscure within the pages of Scripture. But without her act of heroism, we would have nothing to celebrate this coming Wednesday. Of any in Scripture, I think she is certainly one of those unsung heroes that God used in an amazing way to protect the coming of the Messiah and thus give us a reason for the season. We find her story not in the New Testament, but in the Old, back in Second Chronicles 22. So if you could be turning there. And yes, I know, we are back in the Old Testament again this morning, even for Christmas. We've been in the major, no, the minor prophets, excuse me, for several months now. So I thought, you know, it would be appropriate. Let's look in the Old Testament for our Christmas message this year. Our story actually doesn't begin in Second Chronicles 22, but back in Second Chronicles 18, there's one verse that's important to recognize. Actually, is there somebody that could flip? Jane, could you flip the... Um, thank you. We'll leave that up there. <clears throat> this is our... Our world-famous king's chart by now. You should be very familiar with it. By the way, you know you have to have this memorized by the time we're into the prophets, right? So uh, I want to go back a few years. We've been in Hosea. I want us to go back. We're going to go back to the two kings that are highlighted there on the chart. But let me read this verse first. It's a short phrase. Jehoshaphat allied himself by marriage with Ahab. That's it. This seemingly insignificant event actually set in motion a series of events which would put the very line of the Messiah in jeopardy. This verse, uh, that Jehoshaphat allied himself by marriage with Ahab, that describes a common occurrence in the ancient Near East and really throughout history where uh, the rulers of two kingdoms or two nations would intermarry their children in order to bring an alliance between those two nations. There are several famous examples of this in history. In this particular case, the kings were Jehoshaphat of Judah and Ahab of Israel. Perhaps these names are familiar sounding to you by now. They reigned about 60 years after Israel had split into the two kingdoms. There were the ten tribes in the north and then the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, to the south. And their relationship was at tension at times. In fact, under the reigns of Jehoshaphat and Ahab, under their father's reigns, excuse me, there was war between Judah and Israel. But then we have this marriage, and I think Jehoshaphat initiated it and brought it about probably in the hopes to promote peace between the two nations. And so he had his son Jehoram marry the daughter of Ahab, whose name was Athaliah. Now that these families were in-laws, it will be harder for them to go to battle with one another, knowing that one of their offspring was actually part of the royal house of the other nation. 
There was another advantage in this alliance, and that is that the threat of the nations around Judah and Israel, they could now have an ally to help join them if they were ever attacked, and especially because the nation of Assyria was growing in power to the east. Now, when you think about this alliance, Jehoshaphat was described in 2 Chronicles 17 as a good king, a godly king, one who sought the Lord with his heart, one who followed his commandments, one who loved him. And thinking about that, do you see any problems with this alliance? What do we know about Ahab's family? In fact, we talked about it briefly last week. 1 Kings 16, 33 says that Ahab, that his family, he did more to provoke God than any king in Israel. He married a woman named Jezebel. She was the daughter of the king of Phoenicia, who also happened to be a priest of Baal, a high priest. And so when Ahab and Jezebel got together, they, they were on a mission. A mission not only to bring in the worship of Baal into Israel, but also to totally eradicate and eliminate the worship of the one true God. And so Jezebel was on a mission. And she found any prophet of God that she could locate and find, she would have killed. In fact, they went into hiding. Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, was number one on their most wanted list. These people were evil. There was one story that uh, angers me every time I read it. And it happened in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 21. It was about a man named Naboth who had a field that happened to be right next to one of the palaces of Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab looked at the field and, I want that field. I like that field. I've got another vineyard I'd like to plant. But Naboth wouldn't give up the field because it was been in his family for generations. It was the only land he had. He felt it would have been a dishonor and wrong to sell this field. But Ahab and Jezebel set him up. They brought him before the city council, accused him of blasphemy against God and many other crimes. He was stoned to death and along with his sons just so that these two could have another piece of dirt to plant some things. They were evil. And now Jehoshaphat aligns himself with this family by having his son marry into it. He married into a family who was the most wicked rulers Israel had ever seen. Brings to mind that passage in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, I think. What does it say? Bad company corrupts good morals. And that is exactly what we see play out in this marriage alignment alliance and that it almost led to the complete downfall of David's monarchy. So let's skip ahead, 2 Chronicles 21, verse 1, to see what happens. Then Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, became king in his place. He had brothers, that is Jehoram, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephtiah. All of these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them many gifts of silver, gold, and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. So here we have uh, what's commonly seen in Kings and Chronicles. We have Jehoshaphat. He, he dies. The king dies. And so his oldest son comes to take the throne after him. In this case, his oldest son, Jehoram. That was the one with whom the, the marriage had been arranged. Jehoshaphat's other sons, though, are also mentioned here. Jehoram's brothers. And that's a little bit unusual. Typically, uh, the rest of the family isn't described as you go through Kings and Chronicles. It just describes the king, how long he reigned, what was the character and nature of his reign, but rarely does it mention other siblings. But here, the author of Chronicles chooses to include them. Well, we see why in verse 4. 
when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did. For Ahab's daughter was his wife. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David, since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. All right. Jehoram gets to the throne. What's his first act as king? Kill his brothers. Wipe out any threat to his power, any threat to him losing the throne. And he kills off his own brothers. Now, I wonder who in the world gave him that idea. What does it say in verse 6? He did evil because Ahab's daughter was now his wife. That doesn't mean Jehoram was not to blame. But here is a woman, again, whose mother is Jezebel, who now is a significant influence in Jehoram's life. And as a result... What Jehoram did here, the end of chapter 21 in Second Chronicles describes God brought upon him a, a terrible disease and sickness, a two-year ordeal that ended up with his bowels coming out and his death, a painful and gruesome demise. And so as a result, his son, Ahaziah, comes to the throne. Look at verse, or chapter 22, verse 1. Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men who came with the Arabs to the camp had slain all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter, the granddaughter, excuse me, of Omri. Now there's a couple of important things to notice that the author included here. First, notice that it says Ahaziah was Jehoram's youngest son. Now, again, who was it that normally would ascend to the throne after a king had died? The oldest, right? That was the case in Jehoram. But here he notes that it's the youngest son who ascends to the throne. Now, why is that? Well, he mentions it here in verse 2. And it's also described a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 21. There was an invasion by the Philistines from the west and also by those from Arabia in the south. They came into the land of Judah. They abducted uh, the, the sons of Jehoram, Ahaziah's brothers, and took them away and killed them. Only Ahaziah was left. The second thing the author notes here in verse 2 is the identity of Ahaziah's mother. Just to remind us who it is that still is alive. And this is Ahaziah's mother. And it mentions here that she was the granddaughter of Omri. If you look on our chart, Omri was Ahab's father. Now, that's a significant detail to include because look at the next verse, verse 3 of Second Chronicles 21. It says, He, that is Ahaziah, also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they, that's the house of Ahab, were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. Just as Athaliah and Ahab's family had manipulated Jehoram, so too now they exerted their evil influence upon Ahaziah. And God's, God's judgment came upon Ahaziah as well. Take a look at verse 7. Now the destruction of Ahaziah was from God, and that he went to Joram. Joram was now Ahab's son. Ahab had, had died. So his son was on the throne in Israel. 
he went to Joram. For when he came, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. Now again, Jehu, we talked about him a little bit last week. He shows up in Hosea. He was a military officer in Ahab's Ahab's, uh, kingdom. And he was told by God to uh, go and take out Ahab and his family as a judgment for Ahab's great evil that he had committed over the years. And so Jehu was used by God to bring that judgment. And it came about, look at verse 8, when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah and slew them. He also sought Ahaziah, and they caught him while he was hiding in Samaria. They brought him to Jehu, put him to death, and buried him. For they said he is the son of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all his heart. So there was no one of the house of Ahaziah to retain the power of the kingdom. Stop there a minute. Okay, so here he describes Jehu after he had destroyed, wiped out Ahab's family. He's traveling along and he happens upon Ahaziah's brother's sons, his nephews. They were, uh, as it turns out, traveling up, and you can read this in 2 Kings 9 and 10, they were traveling up to see Ahab's family, to pay their respects, because now, I mean, they were, uh, they were close with one another. And so Jehu, in his zeal, destroyed all of Ahaziah's nephews as well, though that was not part of the Lord's instruction. He went beyond it. And so here, the author mentions that Ahaziah no longer has these nephews. The question is now, okay, Tim, why are you bringing up all this detail? I mean, what, what is the point of this history lesson? Why don't we just get to the heroine of the story? When, when are we going to talk about Christmas? You know, there's a baby, a star, angels, that kind of stuff. Where is that? We're buried deep within the pages. The Old Testament, several hundred years before Jesus. We're going to get there. But I first want you to understand and, and get a feel and an impression of the circumstances and the situation that was going on just before Our heroine comes to the scene. There's a point here that the writer of Chronicles is emphasizing. Do you understand what the condition of the Davidic monarchy is at this point in history? What have we talked about here? Ahaziah is now dead, right? He's in the line of David, right? He was killed by Jehu. All of Ahaziah's brothers are dead. They were killed by the Philistines. All of Ahaziah's uncles are dead. They were killed by their brother, Ahaziah's dad, Jehoram. All of the sons of Ahaziah's brothers are dead, also killed by Jehu. So the question now is, who's left? Who's left? Notice the writer of Chronicles exposes the desperation of this situation at the end of verse 9. Look there where he says, There was no one in the house of Ahaziah to retain the power of the kingdom. That verse isn't in the parallel account in Kings because the author here is saying, hey, do you, stop for a minute here, reader. Do you recognize where things are at? There's nobody left to take the throne except for Ahaziah's sons. There's no uncles, no cousins, no nephews, no brothers, only Ahaziah's sons. But look at verse 10 where there is a shocking turn of events. Athaliah is not done in our story. It says there, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. You read that right. When Ahaziah died, when her son died, Athaliah did what any loving grandmother would do. (laughs) 
She hunted down her grandsons and killed them. Now, that doesn't compute with me. You know, there's a situation in my life when my grandmother took me in. And she raised me and she cared for me and she loved me. Perhaps some of you have been in that situation where you had a grandparent or grandma who cared for you or perhaps was a significant influence in your life. Or some of you may be in the situation now as grandmas or have been where you've taken care of a grandchild. I just, this evil woman does the unspeakable. She murders her grandsons. Why in the world did she do this? Why do you think she did this? It says there that she destroyed all the royal offspring in the house of Judah to make the point that she wanted the throne. She wanted to be in power. So much so she would kill her own grandbabies to get there. We don't know how many grandchildren she had. Ahaziah was not that old. He was only 22, 23 uh, range. So probably not a lot of them. But she killed them nonetheless. She was eliminating any competition to the throne. And now that there were, and this idea of royal, killing off the royal offspring may have also included any remnant cousins or anything else. She wanted to make sure there was nobody left that could claim the throne except her. The house of Ahab was alive and well in Judah. But it turns out she didn't get all of them. There was one baby left little boy named Joash. All that was left in David's line was this one infant. Second Samuel 7, God made a promise to David that he would not lack a man on the throne forever. And this little baby was the last opportunity for God to fulfill that promise. It was almost done. David's line, the lamp of David's line, was now but a flicker. Jesus' descendants were almost at a point where they were going to be completely snuffed out by this evil queen mother. But then comes verse 11. But Jehoshabaoth, the king's daughter, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So Jehoshabaoth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah, so that she would not put him to death. He was hidden with them in the house of God six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. You have the scene pictured here? Athaliah is going after her grandsons. And you can imagine the, the chaos in the midst of that and things going on, child after child being discovered, taken, and then executed. And then in the midst of all that, there's this woman named Jehoshabah or Jehosheba in Kings. She acts quickly. She grabs this boy, just like Robin who climbed into the burning home or Denise who jumped into the turbulent ocean or Gloria who stepped in front of the oncoming car. This woman, Jehoshaphat, rushed to grab Joash and take him and his nursemaid and hide them. In verse 11, it says, in a bedroom. Probably wasn't a regular bedroom in the palace for they would have been found. The, the word here actually should probably be translated a, a room of bedding supplies. Basically, she takes him, hides him in a closet so that Athaliah would not find him. And then when the coast was clear, because she had to act fast, when the coast was clear, she got them out and took him into her home, which uh, because she was the wife of a priest, they had quarters near the temple area. And so that's where this young Joash lived for the next six years. It's quite an irony here when you think about it. Ahaziah's mother 
was seeking to kill the very one Ahaziah's sister was trying to save. And this woman, Jehoshaphat, was no mere passerby. Um, she was the daughter of King Jehoram, which explains how she would have access to the palace. But she was not the daughter of Athaliah, for here she's described as the sister of Ahaziah, the daughter of the king. So uh, Athaliah was probably her stepmom. And here this woman is. Notice how she takes, how the author repeats her name twice and her create, courageous act twice. I think in order to emphasize the, the bravery with which this woman showed. Because Jehoshaphat was taking an incredible risk here, wasn't she? I mean, if Athaliah was willing to kill her grandchildren, what would be the issue? She wouldn't think twice about taking out her, her stepdaughter, would she? And yet without consideration of her own safety, this woman takes this baby and her nursemaid and hides them before they could be discovered. And you know what makes her action more noble to me anyway is the fact she took this risk and she had a comfortable life. She's the daughter of a king. She was married to the high priest. They had a a home and all the comforts there. All her needs were cared for. Her husband was a good man, as 2 Chronicles 23 describes. She had a place in society. And if she wouldn't make any waves, life would be set for her. She could just look the other way, let this go. But praise God, she didn't. Jehoshaphat's courage was seen not only that day, not only in that moment when she saved that baby... But notice, this wasn't a one-time event. She took that child in for six years and hid him. Now think about that. Six years. Yes, they were hiding in a temple area, which, you know, Athaliah, that's probably the last place she'd show up. But this was still very risky. I mean, think about it. How could you hide a child, not let anybody know about it, for six years from infancy on up? What would her days have been like? Every day, trying to keep him hidden, trying to not let let any passerbys know about this so that there'd be no suspicions. I wonder how many close calls she had. I wonder how many times her heart dropped when she heard a knock at the door or horses galloping by or perhaps some noise in the night. For six years, she did this. You see, she didn't just risk her life For one day, that day she stole them away. She risked her life for over 2,000 days after that to care for this baby. And her heroism wasn't just seen in the fact that she saved a baby's life, not just because this baby was a royal baby, but because she saved a promise. A promise that God had made, as I mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel 7, when he said, To David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And that was a promise God reiterated to David's son, Solomon, in 1 Kings 11.36, when he told him, My servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem. Now that lamp in those days was a picture, a symbol, that someone was occupying the home. And so here God was telling Solomon, Your father, I've given a lamp on this throne. His throne will be occupied by a descendant of David forever. Second Chronicles 21.7. We just read that. We saw a reference here to this promise where despite Jehoram's wickedness, even though God had taken out Ahab's family, he promised not to do it to Jehoram's. It says there that the Lord was not willing, in Second Chronicles 21.7, to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he'd made with David. And since he'd promised to give him a lamp to him and his sons forever. 
But here we are on the brink of David's lamp going out. For it, think about it, if Joash had been found by Athaliah, that was it. There'd be no human heir left to David's throne. It would be the destruction of the line of the Messiah. That coming one that was first promised in the garden wouldn't be coming. But God, in the right place and at the right time, placed a woman. A woman who saw a terrible wrong being done. A woman who risked it all, really, to do what was right. A woman who bravely stayed the course. A woman who trusted in God's plan. And in the end, a woman who saved Christmas. But you know, we see no accolades given to Jehoshaphat here. Andrew Carnegie didn't show up to give her a medal of honor. She received no bronze star for her bravery. And you know, her name is only found in two verses in all the Bible. The verse we read here in verse 11 and in the parallel account back in 2 Kings. But without question, there was a period of time in our history where she was the most important person on this planet. And just as we should be thankful for Mary and the many others that were a part of Christ's coming, so too we need to be thankful for this courageous woman, Jehoshaphat, and thankful to God for raising her up at that time. For just as the end of the hopes of the Messiah were about to be pierced through by the soldier's sword, this woman stepped in, and she made a way so that David's lamp could burn brightly 800 years later on that Christmas day when a baby's cry was heard from a feeding trough. You know, looking at this whole incident that took place, who do you think was ultimately behind wiping out David's line? Was it Athaliah? Was this merely a plot by Ahab's family to seize control of Judah as well? There was a real mastermind behind this, right? Who was that? The devil. Satan, right? Throughout history, he's tried to prevent the Messiah from coming many times. In fact, I want us to look at one of these occasions back in Genesis 6. Yeah, we're going to go even further back now in the Old Testament. But I want you to look at this and see. We remember from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God pronounced a curse. Because of Adam's sin, death had now entered the world, physical death and also eternal separation from God. And God pronounced a curse. But not only did He pronounce a curse as a result of that sin, He also gave a promise. Genesis 3.15, where He said the seed of a woman would come and crush the head of the, the serpent, Satan being the agent behind the serpent. And so as time went on, humanity was looking for that man, that coming one. But Satan was too. Satan was also looking. And he would do whatever he could to prevent this man from coming. And look at, there's one such attempt in the days of Noah in Genesis 6. One, let me read it to you. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then the story goes on to tell of the flood. 
So here we have these beings introduced here called the sons of God. It's a common reference to heavenly beings or angels. Or in this case, as we see by what they did, these were evil angels or what we call demons. And these verses described how these demons possessed men and had relations with women and then raised the children that came out of that. Now that's a scary thought, having a dad who is demon-possessed. Then this race they produced in that men are already evil. We already have sin inbred in our own hearts. David said we are born in sin. But imagine that situation where somebody already inclined to evil, as we all are apart from Christ, to have a dad who was possessed by a demon raising you. What was a recipe for great wickedness, so great that God sent a flood upon mankind. And the question is, why did these demons do that? Why did they decide to inhabit men and then raise children? Well, verse 2 indicates they were motivated by lust. But there's, if you take an examination, if you look at the larger context between Genesis chapter 3 and 5, an additional motivation emerges Again, after the promise in Genesis 3.15 of the coming conqueror, people begin to hope for his coming. In fact, we see Eve express that hope in Genesis 4.1. And then again, Lamech, who is Noah's father, expresses that hope in Genesis 5. In fact, if you look at verse 29 of chapter 5, when Noah is born, his father says this, May, may this one give us rest, rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. When Noah was born, his dad was hoping, I hope this is the one. I hope my son is the one who's going to lift the curse. And it is in that context, just a few verses later, we see these demons go into their plan. See them going to work. So given all of this, not only was immoral lust part of their motivation, but this was also part of Satan's attempt to sabotage God's plan, to destroy the seed of the woman or to prevent him from coming or at least to corrupt him when he came. Because of the great wickedness, again, God destroyed the earth, but he did preserve humanity through Noah and his family. I hear there's a movie coming out soon about that. But for anyone who may be wondering, you ever wonder, what happened to those demons? God brought a flood on the earth What happened to the demons that were involved in corrupting the human race even further? Well, 2 Peter 2.4 says that they were imprisoned in pits of darkness. They were locked up. There they sit, not allowed to roam until final judgment. And 1 Peter 3.19 is an interesting verse because it indicates Jesus took a trip to see these demons after his death. It says there, Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. In the Bible, the only spirits that are described as being in prison are the ones Second Peter talks about, connected to the flood, which is these sons of God. Now, Peter doesn't tell us what Jesus proclaimed when he spoke to them. It's probably something on the order of this. Your attempts to keep me from coming didn't work. Here I am. He's about to rise from the dead. The seed of the woman has triumphed on the cross and crushed the head of your master. Satan. Pastor Jack used to use this phrase. This was a divine neener neener. (laughs) Again, we don't know for sure what Jesus said, but I think it may have been close to those things. But Satan wasn't done. After Genesis 6, he would try again in Egypt with Pharaoh. 
as the Israelites were growing in numbers and Pharaoh was becoming worried that they might overtake him, overpower the Egyptians, they were slaves. And so he commanded that all the baby boys, what? Be killed, be thrown into the Nile. But again, through the heroic acts of two women, a mother and a daughter, baby Moses was saved, he's delivered, and that he would soon become the deliverer of God's people. Again, Satan was thwarted. Then there's that conversation between Nathan and David, where God sent the prophet Nathan to David to tell David about God's promise to give him the throne over Israel forever. Now, do you think Satan overheard that conversation? Probably so. So he tried to wipe out David's line. That became his mission. And he nearly did it, as we just read about through Athaliah. But without the gutsy Jehoshaphat, he almost pulled it off. A few hundred years later, when the Jews were in exile, Satan used a wicked man named Haman to get the king of Persia to issue an edict calling for the genocide of all the Jews in the kingdom. But then another heroine arose. Who was she? You know the story, right? Queen Esther, who risked her own life to go and appeal before the king and thus saved the people of Israel from destruction. But Satan wouldn't get up, give up. When Jesus was a baby, he made another attempt through the wicked King Herod. You remember what he did, right? Right? The Magi told him there was a king of the Jews who had been born. And so to eliminate the threat, Herod, by the way, was a guy who killed his brothers as well, just like Jehoram. So to eliminate this threat of a potential king rising up, what did he tell his soldiers to go and do? Go into Bethlehem, the surrounding areas. I want every boy under two killed. That's part of our Christmas story, by the way. Imagine that day. But Satan's plan failed again, didn't it? Mary and Joseph made their way out to Egypt with baby Jesus, with the young boy Jesus. And then came Satan's final attempt when he went after Jesus himself, entering Judas to make sure the betrayal was completed, the betrayal of Jesus to his enemies. But you know, Satan's very plan to murder Christ was turned against him, wasn't it? For that that heel, that heel that was crushed by the Roman soldier's hammer on the cross was the very heel that would crush Satan by Jesus' death. For on that cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan once for all because Jesus lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve to be on that cross. And as he died, he became the one who satisfied the wrath of God through that death and made the only way for us to be forgiven and conquered death through his resurrection. And so in trying to eliminate the one who was prophesied that would crush him, Satan actually became the instrument of his own undoing. For God preserved his champion. And that's really the story that is woven throughout all of Scripture. God's plan, his redemptive plan to save sinners, and how he protected that plan so that it would be carried out as we move through history. So as you look upon the manger scene this Christmas, my my family and I, we went out last night up the Santa Clarita area. There were some houses with decorations. Some of them had these manger scenes. And, you know, Mary and Joseph were sitting there next to or behind the manger. As you look at those scenes this Christmas, look, look behind it. Not just to Mary and Joseph. They sacrificed much to have this baby and to raise him. But look not just to their sacrifice. Look behind them. 
Look behind them to the many God has brought and used throughout history. Women and men, women like Jehoshaphat, who God used to preserve the line of the Messiah. Look further behind all of them, further behind Jehoshaphat and the many others to God himself, who is ultimately the one who protected his promise from happening. God is the one who ultimately kept that promise. You know, it's interesting, uh, the name Jehoshaphat. You know what that name means? It means Yahweh vows or Yahweh swears or Yahweh's oath. Think that was a coincidence? I don't. God used this woman whose name means Yahweh vows in order to keep his vow. Even when it appeared there was no way to fulfill that promise because the messianic line was just a breath away from ending. But here God is, working behind the scenes through the life of this faithful and wonderful woman, Jehoshaphat, and many others. He continued to affirm His promise in the prophets. We have seen many verses uh, this morning remind us of that. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child is born to us, a son will be given. The government will rest upon His shoulders. Or Micah 5, 2, part of the passage in Matthew that Pastor Kempis read, which described that the ruler would be coming from Bethlehem, ruler from of old. These and many other passages we hear every Christmas, but don't miss the promise that is contained within these passages. That there would be a coming king, the Son of God. You know, God preserved His champions, such as in the days of the flood and Athaliah and Pharaoh and Herod and all these attempts. God preserved His champion, not just so that His oath to David would be fulfilled. Not just so that he would keep his promise. He also preserved his champion so that sinners could be saved. What was it the angel told Joseph to name the baby? Name him Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Jesus being Latin for Yeshua, Hebrew name, which means God saves, God delivers. What was it the angel who was... Uh, speaking to those shepherds, keeping watch over their flock by night. What was it that he said had happened in Bethlehem that day? Remember, he said, Today in the city of David has been born for you a, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, we, we didn't need a good teacher to come. We, we didn't need a holy man, a wise sage, a mighty leader, a new religion. We needed a Savior, didn't we? For since Adam's sin in the garden, we have all, all of us, have been lost in sin. We all stand condemned as sinners before a just and holy and good God. And you know what? We cannot pay back for that sin. Right? There's, there's nothing we can do to make up for that. There's no equivalent good deeds or good works that we can perform from which God will say, Okay, I'm going to use those to wipe out your sins. We've committed too many sins. We've committed too egregious of a sin, and we've committed them against a holy God. And the only way to satisfy and make justice is for someone who has no sin to be made sin on our behalf. God preserved His champion. Second Chronicles or Corinthians five twenty one says He made Him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so that any who confess their sins to Christ, any who desire to repent, to turn from that sin, to place their trust in Jesus, commit to follow Him for the rest of their days, any who would see that sacrifice that Christ made on the cross as His heel was crushed, as His wrists were crushed, as He bore the sins of us upon Him, as the Father turned away from Him in wrath, and so He suffered the equivalent of an eternity in hell in order to pay for those sins. Any who understand that, who embrace that, who trust in that truth, God will grant eternal life. And that passage in Corinthians says not only will that person be forgiven of those sins, not only will the slate be wiped away of all the evil on it, but that God himself will put the righteous deeds of Christ on that slate in your place. So that when God looks at you, he's not looking at somebody who says, oh, yeah, that's that sinner that I forgave the sins. You say, no, I, I see someone who looks just like my son. That's the great exchange. And, you know, it's one thing to save a life. It's another to suffer eternity in hell on behalf of a soul. And that's what Jesus did. He's the greatest hero. He came as a man and fought the gates of hell as a man, though he was God. And even though he faced many trials, many difficult temptations, he obeyed perfectly to the end. Even though he was beaten and tortured, shamefully and unjustly um, murdered, the flesh ripped off of his back, his beard pulled out, nailed to a tree, he endured to the end. Even though he was blasphemed and mocked, spit on, he loved to the end. Jesus is our hero. He's my hero. Is he yours? You know, it's one thing to put up the Christmas lights and send out Christmas cards and sing Christmas carols and say a prayer at Christmas dinner and even come to services at church on Christmas or Christmas Eve. It's quite another, though, to repent of your sins and become a true follower of Christ. What was it the angels declared, you know, after the one angel spoke to the shepherds that night, told them about Christ being born, and then there was a multitude of heavenly hosts. You remember what they were saying? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth or peace among men. And that's normally where the sentence ends if on most Christmas cards and in most TV specials that you might watch, right? But that's not all that those angels declared, was it? They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's an important little phrase to remember. It's a significant statement, isn't it? For it says that if Jesus is not your hero, if you have not put your faith genuinely in him and desire to turn from your sins and follow after Jesus for the rest of your days, it it says if you've not truly confessed your sins, admitted to God that you are a sinner in need of a savior, then you will not have God's peace. You are not among those with whom he is pleased. You're still in your sins. Still on a path of judgment, separation from God and hell forever. But God preserved his champion so that you could be delivered from that eternal destruction. And even more than that, have eternal life, fellowship with him forever. So make this Christmas a true Christmas. If you've not yet given your life to Jesus Christ, do so. Commit to love Him. Commit to follow Him. Commit to serve Him. 
Commit to living for Him. Before we close this morning, there's one more reason I wanted to briefly tell you about why God provided those many heroes in history, Jehoshaphat and many others, to preserve the coming of His Son. It's really the ultimate reason He did that, and that is that Jesus would be exalted over all. Philippians 2 talks about that, right? That every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. Every knee would bow and then confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where history is headed. That's what life is about. That's what every day is about. That's what Christmas is about. Exalting Christ, worshiping Him, obeying Him, displaying Him to the world. Not as a cute story about a baby and sheep and some singing angels. Or not about some misunderstood and martyred prophet. Not as some good teacher who only came to show us how to love each other better. But as the Lord of creation as the Savior of all, as the Judge of all, the Lamb who would save the world. And the shepherds got it right when they showed up that evening before Jesus. The wise men got it right when they came to the house where Jesus was. Thomas got it right when he came and saw Christ when he was in the room and Jesus, after his resurrection, showed his wounds to Thomas. All of those people had it right in what they did. You remember how they all responded? <laughs> worship. They stood before the king of creation and worshiped him. They fell on their faces before the almighty Lord, the savior of sinners, the judge over all, God's champion, and prostrated at his feet, honoring and thanking him is the right place for us to be as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for keeping your promise to send a redeemer, to send one who would crush the devil's head as power, one who would deliver us from death, from eternal death. Lord, one who would come from David's line to be the the king, king over all the earth. We thank you, Lord, for making that promise. You didn't have to. You are Lord of the universe. Who are we? But yet, you showed your love for us by sending your only Son to die in our place. I, I would pray, Lord, and ask, Lord, if any are here that have not made that commitment, have not truly recognized their sin before you and asked you to forgive them and or commit to follow Jesus, I, I pray, God, that you would reveal him to them, that, Lord, you would grant them understanding and repentance. And I pray for, for us, Lord, who... You've graciously opened our eyes, not because of anything in us, because of your kindness. We thank you for the time we could celebrate Christ. Or may he be lifted up in our lives, not just today, but this week, Lord, and in the weeks ahead. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.